This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo, and it's great to be joined by my co-host, uh, Michael Horn. Uh, today with us, we have Dan Summers, who is uh, CEO of Trilogy, which is a, um, a which develops partnerships with universities, much in the way uh, companies like uh, 2U and Pearson and Learning House have contracted with institutions to help them design and market their online courses and degrees. But in uh, Trilogy's case, uh, it is really focused on coding uh, boot camps, and it works primarily with colleges' continuing education divisions. So, Dan, it's great to have you uh, with us today. Um, so tell us first uh, a question we like to ask all of our guests. How did you get into the world of, uh, of education? And thank you uh, both for having me uh, onto your show today. Uh, so, yes, taking a, a step back, I grew up in a household with a father who was a state university of New York trustee. Uh, I grew up in Binghamton, New York, and uh, often around the dinner table, the conversation really led to discussion around challenges in higher ed. I remember heated discussions around tuition increases that were being discussed amongst the uh, trustees at the time. And we also often talked about uh, the relevance of higher education to the workforce. So I guess you could say I came by a passion uh, for education honestly. But it wasn't until about 2001 uh, when things really started to click for me. Uh, and ultimately, I believe the experience I had in 2001 helped to, to shape both my career as well as uh, my desire to ultimately build Trilogy. So 2001, as you recall, there was a, a, a bad economy. The economy was challenged. It was the dot-com crash. And I built a business out in California and ultimately ended up uh, leaving California to come back uh, to New York uh, right around January 2001. And at the time, my future father-in-law, who's uh, my father-in-law uh, today, uh, married 16 years November, gave me sage advice. Uh, and he said to me, uh, in a bad economy, if you're a specialist, you will always uh, be able to stand the test of time. If you can develop a skill and a specialty, regardless of the economy, you'll be safe and secure. And that, that concept really resonated uh, with me deeply. In fact, so much so that I ended up going to a school of continuing education at NYU to become a specialist in digital marketing. And that specialty, uh, through that uh, economic downturn and, and the one in 2008, uh, really helped me to develop my career. I started by building a marketing agency which was truly focused on the higher education sector. Uh, and ultimately I ended up uh, selling that, uh, that agency to a larger uh, company. Uh, from there I went on to become CEO uh, and chairman of a global OPM provider uh, an online program manager that was owned by Global University Systems. And that's where I really learned about deep integration uh, between uh, private enterprises and universities and how that partnership model could work when done effectively. And, and then did that give you then the idea for, for Trilogy, given that you, you, you kind of have an OPM model, correct? That, that's exactly right. That was that was absolutely one of the key touch points. But the third one was that I ended up investing in a small coding school. And then I started to connect the dots 
and I re and, and I saw in 2014, 2015 that there was a tremendous gap in the number of technical jobs open and the number of computer science grads, of which there were about 50,000 coming out of universities every single year. And in connecting the dots, I thought, what if uh, instead of having students go to standalone schools, what if they could go to universities really throughout the world to learn skills-based education? And so I came up with the idea of this vertically focused uh, OPM model, and I brought it to Rutgers University. And I said, we can work together to develop uh, a web development boot camp. Uh, and, and the rest is, uh, is history, as they say. Since <laughs> signing in, in July 2015 with Rutgers, uh, we've now partnered with 41 universities globally. So 41 universities in, in, in three years. I, I, I guess I'm curious. It, it, it makes a lot of sense to me from, from your perspective sitting there that you'd say rather than do standalone boot camps or, or create a chain of boot camps that try to scale internationally, why not take advantage of really well-established and trusted brands and universities and, and do this? But, but flipping the script from the university's perspective, as they sought to work with you in this space, wh what was in it for them and why was it important for them to get in, 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 into these programs? Yeah, so I hear a, a very consistent uh, theme as I speak with deans, uh, both uh, in the United States and beyond. And there's really three things that matter most uh, in our conversations, which really, which really uh, lead them, uh, I believe, to partnering with Trilogy. The first is that many of them uh, are, are, uh, see the opportunity to make programs industry relevant, to really incorporate feedback uh, from from the industry, and that's a key driver uh, in terms of their desire to partner. Uh, the second uh, uh, item that we always hear from our university partners is that they want to provide access or accessibility to more non-traditional students that are not the traditionally matriculated students at the university. And then the third, with all of the pressures that exist out there uh, in terms of enrollment growth, uh, the idea that they can also uh, develop alternative credential programs to generate income for the institution as well is, I would say, a, a distant third priority uh, for the types of institutions that we've partnered with. And those are three drivers of, of creating a partnership. Um, then I'd say that uh, what we do at Trilogy uh, is to provide uh, a number of, of, of areas uh, of technology, of, of data, of learning analytics, and other types of systems to build a, a very productive, uh, deeply integrated partnership with our university. So, so, so Dan, I'm curious, I, I, I was going to totally go a different direction, but something you just said sparked this for me, which is, in terms of curriculum building, are, are you all largely building that curriculum and and uh, and, and delivering it, uh, are they building the curriculum and you're delivering, like what's the relationship there and how does that play with their accreditation and, and, and so forth? Absolutely. So, uh, so I'll start with how we develop the curriculum, uh, which gives you a good sense. And I'll also talk a little bit about the model itself. So what we've done is we've, we, we've, we've centralized uh, the core curriculum. We've built a curriculum on, on GitHub, which is a code repository. And what that allows us to do is centrally manage a curriculum. We get input from industry. We get input from 
uh, instructors and TAs from across the country, of which we have over 900. We get input from faculty members at universities. Uh, we get input from the learner analytics uh, that we get on student progression throughout the classroom. So what we've been able to do is build a curriculum that's dynamic and changing. We've made over 10,000 changes to the curriculum over the last three years to really reflect industry input. Uh, so the role of the university versus the role of Trilogy. Uh, Trilogy provides this market-driven curriculum. The university uh, provides feedback, faculty review uh, of the curriculum. Uh, Trilogy provides uh, recruiting services to bring in uh, terrific instructors and TAs. The university has to vet and approve all those instructors and TAs. So, sorry, Dan, just want to want, want to just jump in for one second and make sure I understand one thing, which is this is po this arrangement. It sounds like it's possible because it's non-degreed programs that you're typically offering. Whereas the university might want more control over shaping it if it were a degree program. Is, is that an accurate read or, or, or am I missing something? I think universities see that uh, in developing a truly market driven curriculum with so many dynamic changes that uh, there has to be some, some flexibility in terms of engaging with industry. And because these are non-credit programs where students at the end of the day receive a certificate from the university for taking on these immersive programs, that's that's exactly correct. Dan, what what stops though? Is this a is this a truly disruptive force that you think is going to transform all of higher ed, or or what stops universities from kind of developing this expertise in house and doing it themselves, and kind of putting people like you out of business eventually? Absolutely. So, uh, talk a little bit about kind of the nature of the partnerships and what we provide. Um, so, we we start off when we provide a technology platform. Uh, for managing these programs and these classes. To put it in context, we've run over 900 classes really across the globe uh, where we're constantly getting information and learning that helps to update the curriculum. We've developed a, a curriculum of over a million lines of code which is deployed and regionalized to meet the local needs of employers. And that curriculum has changed uh, over 10,000 times over the last three years. But I think one of the key areas uh, that really makes us effective is how we use data. And I'll give you one example. Uh, so now in aggregate, we've collected over 2 million data points uh, from students across the country. We ask students every week in a class about pace and self-mastery and academic support and their feedback on instructor clarity, engagement, knowledge. And we use all of that data uh, to provide additional support and tutoring to students that need it, uh, to refine the curriculum, uh, to give universities visibility into classroom performance and student progression uh, really across the entire network. And every wow. week when we meet with our universities, they can actually see how individual classes in, and students are performing relative to national averages and relative to uh, uh, multiple classes uh, within the, the particular institution. So what that allows us to do is, is give really great guardrails and checks and balances across the entire process. And that's something that's hard to truly uh, replicate. 
so, so, so da- oh, sorry, I was I was going to say like the economies of scale there actually, and 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 the insights that you're able to to derive because of that scale seem seem pretty enticing from a university. I guess switching tracks a little bit, if if uh, with with the last question and the time we have remaining, if if you were to forecast out like the rise of these short term programs, call them last mile training programs, call them boot camps, call them workforce accelerators, what have you is super interesting in the landscape. Do you think this is going to be the dominant mode of how students consume uh, post-secondary education in the future? Or do you think, uh, you know, will, will degree programs and, and, and longer term uh, programs sort of have, have, have durability and they'll exist, they'll coexist? So I believe in, in, in the concept uh, of the 60 year curriculum very, very, very deeply. And in discussions with, with Hunt Lambert, um, and Gary Matkin and other uh, deans across the country, the idea that whether you're 17 or you're 77, uh, there's an opportunity for, for ongoing and lifelong learning where some individuals are going to go uh, and, and get a college degree and others are going to get a certificate in a school of continuing education and others still are going to attend uh, boot camps or go and get micromasters. And it's really all about this need for lifelong learning, and particularly in tech, where the half-life of a skill can be two or three years, there's going to be an ongoing need. And degrees will play a role, and master's programs will play a role, and boot camps will play a role across that spectrum. And I don't see that changing. Well, Dan, uh, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but uh, again, thanks for joining us uh, by Skype today, and uh, and we look forward to watching uh, the continuing evolution of, of, of entities like Trilogy. Uh, so uh, good luck with everything, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. You too. And we'll be back on Future You. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. Welcome back to Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo, um, and we just uh, wrapped up with Dan Summer, who is a CEO of uh, Trilogy, uh, Michael, and an interesting kind of a tweak on the OPM model there. Uh, obviously, unlike other OPMs that are dealing with credit-based, mostly graduate uh, programs, he's dealing in the non-credit space. And, and, and I think most faculty probably pay very little attention to that non-credit space, although it creates incredible uh, enrollments and, and, and money for uh, institutions. How do you think that it impacts kind of the, the growth of Trilogy, which is a very hot company right now, compared to other OPMs? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it gives them a lot more freedom and white space to grow in many ways, because at least as I understood it coming out of that conversation, a lot of higher ed institutions are saying, hey, you want to come in and help us make a little bit more incremental money and you're going to provide the curriculum and accreditors aren't going to mind because it's non-credit bearing, uh, non-degree based uh, programs? Sure. Love it. And and it seems like, and I'm curious your take on this, Jeff, 
faculty are largely saying, sure, go ahead. Whereas in a traditional OPM business, and we've obviously had Chip Palsik on mm-hmm. from 2U, that's not the reaction at all you get from faculty. They're very involved in these uh, OPM selection processes, very intimately involved in thinking about who will manage curriculum, how will that be done, how do I safeguard the quality uh, and the reputation of the institution. That doesn't seem to be the case here at all. And, and obviously, accreditation is different because accreditation requires in a traditional OPM that the university retain uh, control over that academic content and creation. But this is different here. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure how much control uh, colleges and universities really had in these School of Continuing Studies. Anyway, most of the faculty in these schools were uh, adjuncts, uh, you know, professionals uh, who were teaching in the evenings and on weekends and at nights. So there was not much central faculty control except in the design of the overall uh, programs. I also think that faculty kind of on the main campus, uh, in many of these cases, sometimes these professional development uh, programs are off campus or on the edge of campus, I don't think they really paid much attention to them, Mm -hmm. um, which is unfortunate because I think for the most part, they did provide a subsidy back to the main campus, especially at many of the more selective uh, universities that operate huge uh, continuing education programs. Uh, we had Hunt Lambert from uh, you know Harvard yeah, Extension they, on here. They have right? twenty thousand students, exactly. which is equal to the overall population, graduate and undergraduate of Harvard. Harvard right, yeah. and I bet you that if you talk to most faculty members at Harvard, they don't know that they don't. They probably know this exists, but for the most part, most faculty I think haven't paid much attention to this. And the thing is that I think in the future, uh, this is going to be a big part of uh, of higher education in terms of its ability to kind of connect on to traditional degrees, right? This idea of lifelong education, this idea even at the undergraduate level that students, particularly, for example, coming out of the liberal arts are going to need specific skill-based courses. Well, where are you going to get those courses from? You're going to want them to come from your own university to kind of connect into your undergraduate curriculum. And the easiest way is to go uh, to your school of continuing studies, which is already doing this, even through things like uh, a trilogy. And then at the lifelong education, where, where students are going to be kind of coming in and out of traditional higher education, again, it's these schools of continuing studies that I think have the flexibility to provide that. So faculty, I think, have to figure out, like, how does that fit in with our traditional majors, our traditional degree? programs. Um, and perhaps that brings these, op- you know, an OPM like a trilogy, and it brings these School of Continuing Studies back into the main core yeah, I was of the university. Question, that right? could be. I mean, and do you think if that, I'd never thought about this, right? Because no. I, I, I totally agree with you. The schools of continuing education are where those entrepreneurial pathways that will ultimately come back to a degree at some point uh, will, will originate. Will that make faculty a little bit more concerned, accreditors a little bit more concerned, and maybe st- quash that growth opportunity at some point or there might be a backlash do you think at at, at trilogy or or continuing education schools say we'll just create this ourselves right i mean one thing that could happen on the faculty level is that faculty could get interested in this and want to create these within their own units so it could create a little war within universities to say well who really owns this content who should develop it again right now it's being developed in these in these school of continuing studies maybe with some faculty input but not much from the experiences that I've had. Um, but the faculty might get much more interested in this, is this if this is going to not only drive enrollments, but in some cases be integrated into the traditional undergraduate or master's programs. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. And schools of continuing education, in my experience, are really the entrepreneurial aspects of these universities. They're the classic Clayton Christensen autonomous division, if you will, with the freedom to rethink a lot. But they also, in my experience, want to do it all. Right. They don't like outsourcing, which is why I find trilogies so 
interesting and different from anything else I've seen where they're really quite willing to, uh, it seems, I, I mean, the fact that Trilogy has a centralized curriculum that all the universities are largely using, and then that creates great economies of scale in terms of improving that curriculum. I totally buy that uh, argument from Dan. I just find it so unusual and anomalous in higher ed. Well, and, and, and I think right now that because they're experimenting with this, schools are saying, sure, come on in and, and do all of this. Um, I, I guess the other question I have for you, Michael, is that will Trilogy see a lot more competitors or will traditional OPMs move much more into this market as they see the growth of, of Trilogy? So, you know, OPMs are, we're, we're seeing some consolidation uh, in OPMs now. We're seeing some OPMs even struggle uh, to kind of keep up with that growth. They're going to look for new markets. Is this a new market for whether it's traditional OPMs or other uh, or other entrants? It's a really good question. I, from my outside perspective on this, it just seems like uh, the schools of continuing education have been averse to working with those outside OPM partners because they said, oh, you want to put an online program together? Well, we do that. We'll do it ourselves. I mean, Harvard has even built its own platform, right? They, and yet they'll work with Trilogy. Uh, so for some reason, this boot camp model that I don't know that the OPMs have experience in running, uh, because it's a very different design, it's much shorter sprints, It's you have to get cohorts in a much uh, different rhythm from, from your classic OPM program, uh, you're moderating a, an in-person experience uh, on these different campuses. It's a different skill set. So I don't know if the OPMs will be able to very naturally go there. And so it seems like Trilogy, you would think that there'd be a lot of fast followers right now because right. they're up to over 40 universities within a couple years of opening. Uh, so very hot company. But we're just not seeing that uh, sort of that market uh, produce something uh, uh, competing back with them, which has been very surprising and interesting. And so it will be interesting to see if other colleges and, and universities follow this model, whether they hire people like Trilogy or whether they try to do it them, uh, themselves. So great to have uh, all of you listening again on this episode of Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo along with uh, Michael Horn. And please continue to listen, uh, rate us and follow us and subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, follow us on uh, social media for the latest updates, not only on this podcast, but our other work. And until next time, thank you and enjoy. Enjoy.